Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Drone warfare, precise and deadly. CNN with exclusive access to the weapons changing the landscape of Russia's war on Ukraine. The lead starts right now. Vladimir Putin showing an increasing reliance on drones that Russia is said to be getting from Iran. Our Clarissa Ward, the only reporter to see up close what Ukraine has been able to shoot out of the sky. Plus, Roe v. Economy? President Biden's midterm pledge today, if Democrats can keep control of Congress, he will get an abortion rights law on the books. But the reality check on that may rely on what is on the minds of most voters. And hunting the injured, protesters shot and beaten in Iran fear going to the hospital where police could be waiting to capture them. The desperate lengths some demonstrators are going to in order to get treatment. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper, and we start with our world lead. Today, a top Ukrainian intelligence official predicted an end to Putin's brutal war. Quote, Russia's loss is inevitable. By the summer, everything should be over. That despite Putin's brazen attacks on Ukraine's energy facilities, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky says nearly a third of Ukraine's power plants have been destroyed. Some of the attacks assumed to be carried out with Iranian-made drones, which we have not seen up close until now. CNN with exclusive access, and in a moment we will show you the drones Iran denies supplying to Russia. Today, President Zelensky toured the wreckage of a Russian strike on a Mykolaiv apartment building and tweeted this video describing attacks on a flower market in a public park, asking, quote, I wonder what the Russians were fighting against at these peaceful facilities as Putin tries to destroy as many of Ukraine's resources as possible before the long, cold winter sets in. Now, Iran's government is emphatically denying it supplied Russia with deadly kamikaze drones, the same drones that have been wreaking havoc on Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv. Let's go there now to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. And Clarissa, it's not just kamikaze drones. You've seen other potentially Iranian-made drones. That's right, John. It's so interesting because Iran has been saying that they are not supplying Russia with drones. Russia has been saying that they are only using Russian weapons on the battlefield. But we know uh, that Ukraine has been getting slammed, particularly by those smaller Shahid-136 drones. But today we saw a different kind of drone also Iranian-made, a larger drone. It's called the Mahajar 6. And this definitely seems to punch a hole right through Russia's claim that it is only using Russian weaponry. Take a look. At an undisclosed location, Ukrainian military intelligence officer Alexei takes us to see one of Russia's newest threats on the battlefield, an Iranian-made drone known as the Mahajar 6. It's big at the Bolshoi. Used by the Russians for reconnaissance and bombing. Yeah, it was shot. I can see this is the hole from where you shot yes, it down. Yes, this is a hole from the rocket mm-hmm. of Ukrainian forces. Mm-hmm. You can see 02. 
2022. So this we, is the date when it was made? We think that this plane was made in this year, when the Russian began to uh, fly these uh, drones. Uh, we have uh, new problems on the, on the battlefield. In just the last eight days, more than 100 drones have been fired at Ukraine, mostly kamikaze Shahed-136 drones, smashing civilian infrastructure and terrorizing ordinary people. The Kremlin today said only Russian equipment with Russian numbers is used in its so-called special operation. But Alexei says there is no doubt where this drone comes from. Now, I don't see any writing in Farsi, in, in Iranian language. How do you know? We know that it is Iranian plane by uh, two main uh, things. Mm -hmm. The first thing, we uh, watched uh, the exhibitions yeah. of the planes in the other countries, and some years ago, uh, Iranian uh, avia companies showed uh, this. This exact model. This, uh, the, this plane. And the second thing, why we feel that it is Iranian plane, yes, uh, we have one only one writing, uh, writing by the hand. Can you show me? Uh, yes, go. So that's Farsi. I think, yes, yes. you're right. Mm -hmm. So if I understand, you're saying that they tried to hide the fact yeah, that this absolutely. was made in Iran. Yes. Ukraine has called for more sanctions against Iran for supplying the drones. But so far, sanctions have had little effect. The components are commercially available in a number of different countries, from Japanese batteries to an Austrian engine and American processors. This is the Muhajir 6. Yes. Now we're seeing these kamikaze drones, the Shahed 136. And you say there's a new generation of drone coming too. The Arash, Arash 2? Arash 2, yes. We worry very much from this. So Alexei told us, John, that this Arash 2, uh, Iranians, he believes, are preparing to supply the Russians with this drone in the coming months. And it would have a massive impact because the smaller Shahed-136 kamikaze drones that we've been talking a lot about over the last week, they can hold roughly 40 kilograms or 88 pounds of explosives. But these Arash 2 uh, drones can hold 200 kilograms of explosives. That's five times the amount of firepower, the amount of explosives that they can deliver. So it's a deadly payload, and that is just one reason that the Ukrainians are really imploring the international community to get on board and help them put a stop to this. Yeah, John. ominous. Uh, Clarissa Ward in Kiev with the first look of anything we've had of anything like this. Thank you very much. With me now, CNN counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd and CNN global affairs analyst Susan Glasser. And Phil... Despite Iran's denials, Ukraine insists these are Iranian drones. Clarissa saw the Farsi there. What does Iran get out of supplying drones that are killing Ukrainian civilians? Well, I think there's a couple things. There's a picture, obviously, in terms of their relationship with Russia. That relationship goes back years. 
If you're looking at the countries around the world that have consistently, and you're looking at the Iran starting with their revolution in 1979, that have consistently said we want to oppose American intervention overseas, it's Russia, it's Iran, it's Syria, it's other countries like uh, North Korea. So to me, there's a strategic relationship here that goes well beyond Ukraine. There's a smaller piece of that, that John. And if you look, if you look at uh, what Iran has done to America in the Middle East, helping groups in Iraq during the American intervention in Iraq, obviously helping Bashar al-Assad in Syria. The message here is clear, whether it's far afield in Ukraine with the Russians or whether it's closer to Iran in places like Iraq and Syria, we don't want the Americans here and we will support those who are fighting the Americans. Pretty basic, I think, John. Yeah, and in the face of this, Susan, Ukraine says it wants more weapons, more money, essentially. The House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy told Punchbowl News today that Democrats have been mishandling Ukraine aid. And if they lose the majority in the House, quote, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. So what implications could this have on the battlefield if Republicans regain control of the House and slash military aid? Yeah, I think it is very significant uh, comment by uh, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy indicating, you know, what we can sort of see, which is there is a, a flank of the Republican Party, uh, the sort of pro-Putin, pro-Trump flank of the Republican Party, the House Freedom Caucus, which would essentially be owning Kevin McCarthy were he to become the speaker. Uh, He would be basically dependent on maintaining their goodwill in order to keep his position in power. There's a, you know, they basically pushed out uh, uh, the two previous speakers in some ways. And I think he would be very vulnerable to this. So it would be a major political shift. I think you can look for the Biden administration to try to put through more aid to Ukraine in a lame duck session if it comes to that after the election, if Republicans do indeed win the House. But I think it could, uh, you know, really underscore Putin's strategy of buying for time, hoping that the coalition, the political coalition to oppose him in the West uh, frays at the edges. So, Phil, Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency says that Russian missile supplies have, quote, fallen below the critical level. The U.S. can't confirm the exact number of weapons Russia has, but acknowledges that Putin is running low on precision-guided missiles. How is this intelligence usually gathered, and how could Ukraine best use this information to its advantage? Boy, there's a lot of ways you can gather this intelligence. You look at a strategic level. Do we have information coming out of Moscow about resupply? Are we getting access to reports from prisoners from Russian batteries in Ukraine about resupply. You're looking at this from imagery that is from stuff like the U.S. government version of Google Earth saying, what is the resupply rate going into Ukraine? You're looking at intercepted communications. What are tactical batteries from the Russians saying about resupply? But in terms of helping the Ukrainians, not only is there a middle military piece there, do we see stuff going in there that we can help counter? There is a really big ticket question here that this helps answer. That is going into 2023 and that question about, for example, Republican willingness to fund the Ukraine war. Does this indicate anything about the Russian capability and will to continue the war? Will is the hardest thing to assess in intelligence. This might be a tiny piece to understand. Can they keep resupplying, John? And does that say something about their will to continue? And Susan, very quickly, uh, in a first, Ukrainian and Russian human rights officials met Monday during a prisoner swap for more than 200 prisoners of war. A top Zelensky aide says it was the first all-female prisoner swap. When you see things like this, how much of a step in a direction toward possible negotiations or discussions is it between the two countries? 
Well, never say never, John. But I think right now the focus is on uh, what's happening on the battlefield because, uh, you know, Ukraine is seeking before the winter sets in to press the uh, momentum that it has and the advantage that it has. Uh, It's very unlikely and has very little incentive, uh, you know, to negotiate when it's still gaining territory back that the Russians took initially on the battlefield for Russia. I think uh, right now is not advantageous because it would be uh, humiliating defeat. And the terms that they've recently signaled would be acceptable are clearly unacceptable to Ukraine. So uh, I wouldn't try to overread anything into this particular moment. Susan Glasser, Phil Mudd, great to see you both. Thank you. Next, President Biden pushes abortion rights as the issue to motivate people to vote for Democrats in the midterms. Is there any way he can actually deliver? the frightening new findings linking hair-straightening products to uterine cancer, black women most at risk, and once again bringing the issue of natural hair to the forefront. In our politics lead, with just three weeks to go until the midterm elections, President Biden is putting abortion access front and center in the Democrats' push to maintain control of Congress, promising today to codify abortion rights into law if the party maintains control of Congress next year. But the president isn't saying how he would overcome a Senate filibuster. Democrats have been reluctant to change Senate rules, even in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe. As CNN's Phil Manning reports, Biden's remarks come as many Democrats grow increasingly concerned the initial outrage over the court's ruling has waned. You got to get out the vote. We can do this if we vote. Just three weeks to Election Day, a clear message from President Biden. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. And when Congress passes it, I'll sign it in January, 50 years after Roe was first decided the law of the land. Democrats battling four-decade high inflation and economic headwinds. It's all in on abortion rights. If you do your part and vote, Democratic leaders in Congress, I promise you, will do our part. I'll do my part. A calculated gamble to rally Democrats, and women independents in particular, to the polls. At the same moment, a recent CNN SSRS poll found 90% of voters said the economy was extremely or very important to their vote. A New York Times Siena poll showing 26% of likely voters see the economy as the most important problem facing the country, and another 18% pointing to inflation. As for abortion, just 5% registered the issue as their most important problem. But Biden's push an effort to tap into clear voter energy in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to strike down Roe versus Wade. We will not go back! Energy White House officials viewed as critical to strong special election performances in New York, Minnesota, and Nebraska, and the rejection of an abortion ballot measure in Ruby Red, Kansas. But Biden making public growing Democratic concerns that enthusiasm has waned. I'm asking the American people to remember how you felt. How you felt that day the extreme Dobbs decision came down? Still, the remarks and implicit acknowledgement of the party's vulnerability on the economy. This race ain't about me. It's about what Raphael Warnock and Joe Biden had done to you and your family. Where Republicans have hammered Biden's party for months of sweeping price increases. As White House officials continue to work intensively to confront their biggest political weakness. The price of gas is still too high and we need to keep working to bring it down. We also need to make more progress bringing down the prices across the board. 
And John, President Biden will move to take some concrete action on gas prices tomorrow. The president slated to give remarks on gas prices, and sources tell me he will announce a new release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, up to 14 million barrels. That's part of that 180 million barrel over six months that he announced in the spring. Clearly a recognition inside the White House that, yes, abortion is an issue that can rally their base, and they're pushing on that, but the economy is the issue people are most concerned about still. John? Phil Mattingly at the White House for us this afternoon. Thank you, Phil. I want to bring in CNN's Matt Egan for more on this. Matt, gas prices, I guess, have dipped a little over the past week, but they're still high after rising in recent weeks. So what kind of an impact will the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve have on this? Well, John, we're actually already seeing an impact. Oil prices falling sharply today on this news that Phil is talking about, and that should help put downward pressure on gasoline prices. A gallon of regular gas now sells for $3.87 nationally. That is, of course, not cheap, but it is well below that record high of over $5 in June. And veteran oil analyst Tom Close, he told me he does think that gas prices could trend lower by the end of the year, perhaps going down by another 20 cents, not necessarily because of what President Biden is doing, because of market forces, but that would be good news. Two important caveats here. One, uh, the fact that the president is going to do this emergency sale. Remember, that is part of the 180 million barrel release that was already announced. The other thing is, as you can see on your screen, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is shrinking rapidly. And this is not a bottomless pit of oil. It's a rainy day fund. And every time you do a release, it leaves less oil for the next crisis. Yeah, you got to put it back in there. Matt Egan, thank you very much. There is new information today about what was happening behind the scenes on January 6th when senior members of Congress evacuated the Capitol. What we're learning about an unexpected partisan divide. Next. This is CNN Breaking News. And we do have breaking news. A federal jury has just reached a verdict in a case brought by special counsel John Durham, tasked by former Attorney General Bill Barr with investigating alleged misconduct in the FBI's Trump-Russia probe. Durham has charged Trump-Russia dossier source Igor Danchenko with lying to the FBI. He faced four counts after the judge threw one out on Friday. CNN's Evan Perez joins us live. Evan, what did the jury decide? John, on all four counts, the jury came back with not guilty uh, verdicts here against Igor Igor Danchenko. Uh, He's a Russia analyst who uh, was uh, one of the primary sources for uh, uh, Christopher Steele's dossier of allegations uh, against Donald Trump from back in 2016. Uh, This is the second time now that John Durham, the special counsel appointed under uh, then Attorney General Bill Barr, has taken a case to trial and in both cases, uh, juries, juries have come back with not guilty verdicts. The previous case was against a, a, a former Clinton uh, a campaign lawyer here in Washington. Uh, that was uh, back uh, a few months ago. In this case, Igor Danchenko is on tr- was on trial in Northern Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia, and it's the same result. Now, uh, the last few days you've seen uh, some struggles uh, by John Durham in this case. The judge threw out one of the counts uh, saying, simply put, that the FBI, uh, that he didn't lie. Uh, the, 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 this is the accusation. He was charged with lying to the FBI. And the judge simply said, uh, he dismissed it simply because he said uh, that the evidence showed that he did not lie. Uh, what we've seen, though, in recent days uh, from John Durham is he started attacking some of his own witnesses, uh, FBI agents who were part of this investigation. Uh, he uh, came out and said that uh, essentially uh, they mishandled 
handled the original investigation of those allegations against the former president Donald Trump, then a candidate in 2016. So now uh, we wait, John, for John Durham to present his final report. We expect that that's going to come in the next couple of months after the midterm elections. John? Yeah. So far, little to show for the Durham probe seems to be the major thrust of the story. Evan Perez, thank you so much Thanks. for your reporting here. In our politics lead, Election Day is just three weeks from today. Tonight in Florida, Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings and Republican Senator Marco Rubio will face off in a debate for Rubio's Senate seat. This follows three very heated debates in Georgia, Ohio, and Utah. CNN's Eva McKend has more on how personal and combative the races have become. As the midterm election heads into its final weeks, voters are already flocking to the polls in large numbers. In Georgia, the state set a midterm turnout record for early voting, with more than 130,000 voters casting ballots Monday. On the trail today, Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker defending his transparency when it comes to reports he allegedly paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion in 2009 and encouraged her to have another two years later, even as he now acknowledges the authenticity of a $700 check he sent to the woman. I've answered that question time and time again, and my campaign now has been about going forward. I've been honest. As the campaign enters the closing stretch, candidates in key races meeting for debates. In the Georgia governor's race, Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic nominee Stacey Abrams going back and forth on voting rights. We need a governor who believes in access to the right to vote right. and not in voter suppression, which is the hallmark of Brian Kemp's leadership. For someone to say that we have been suppressive in our state when we've seen turnout increase over the years, including with minorities like African-Americans, Latinos and others, is simply not true. In the Ohio Senate race, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan and Republican J.D. Vance seeking to tie each other to national figures. I really wish Tim Ryan had stood up to his party <clears throat> on this vote because it might have made the inflation crisis we've been seeing over the last few months a lot better if he hadn't done what he always does, which is vote with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden 100 percent of the time. J.D., you keep talking about Nancy Pelosi. If you want to run against Nancy Pelosi, move back to San Francisco and run against Nancy Pelosi. You're running against me. The 2020 election took center stage in Utah, where Republican Senator Mike Lee is facing a fierce challenge from independent Evan McMullen. To keep a president who had been voted out of office according to the will of the people in power despite the will of the people. Senator Lee, it is a betrayal of the American Republic. I think I disagree with everything my opponent just said, including the words but, and, and the. Um, it was an information-free, truth-free statement uh, that's uh, something of a record. Candidates also starting to showcase their closing messages with Pennsylvania Republican Senate nominee Mehmet Oz today unveiling a new TV ad decrying political extremism as he targets moderate voters in his tight race against Democrat John Fetterman. Extremism on both sides makes things worse. We need balance, less extremism in Washington. And things are really heating up here in Georgia. Herschel Walker just wrapped up a campaign rally here in Atlanta, joined on the campaign trail today by South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. John. All right, Eva McKenforce in Atlanta. Eva, thank you very much. And as January 6th remains a campaign issue, we're learning new details about that day, why Republican and Democratic congressional leaders were kept apart, and who said no to calls for an immediate impeachment of Donald Trump. That's next. Plus, why do so many women still feel pressure to straighten their hair 
That question being asked today after a new study shows an increased risk of uterine cancer for women using hair straightening products. We are back in the politics lead. In Utah, the clash between Evan McMullen and Senator Mike Lee over Lee's actions and behavior on and around January 6th at the center of that race. Uh, Here's some of the context now. In December of 2020, Lee began texting the White House chief of staff about the idea that states could submit alternate slates of pro-Trump electors on January 6th. But Lee did ultimately vote to certify the state's electoral votes. My next guests have a new book out today uncovering new details about what happened on January 6th and what unfolded during both of Trump's impeachment trials is called Unchecked, the Untold Story Behind Congress's Botched Impeachments of Donald Trump. Rachel Beta, Politico, and Karin Diversion of The Washington Post join me now here in studio. I am holding your book. It is wonderful. Congratulations to you both. We just heard that report on Mike Lee and saw Mike Lee in that debate with Evan McMullen. Rachel, why do you think he's so defensive? Given all your reporting... Why so defensive? Other Republicans are, too, to an extent, about what happened and what they did in and around January 6th. Yeah, look, Mike Lee was trying to play both sides of the coin when it came to uh, the president's big lie. I mean, right after the right after Trump lost his reelection, he was one of the people out there telling the president, you know, that he should challenge this, that he should fight in the courts. And that's significant because, you know, Mike Lee, he has a background as a former clerk for Supreme Court justice. Um, He's sort of seen as this guy who really knows the in and outs of the legal system. Um, During both impeachments, he served as a uh, key advisor, uh, in fact, for, for the president. And so, you know, that really revved Trump up, one of the voices revving Trump up. And then he saw, uh, there was no evidence. Uh, and we've seen from reporting since then uh, from other reporters, not necessarily ourselves in this book, but that uh, Lee had an about face. And clearly uh, he decided that he has to certify the election because there was just no evidence of what Trump was saying in terms of fraud. Karen, I want to read what was kind of the nut graph in some ways uh, of the book here, the idea that both parties botched these impeachments or kept them from being fruitful. Trump escaped accountability not simply because his own party wouldn't stand up to him, but because the opposing party was afraid to flex the full force of his constitutional muscle to check him. Republicans didn't just block and sabotage impeachments. Democrats never went all in, fumbling their best chance to turn the American public away from Trump for good. So how much did that maybe begin to lay the groundwork for some of the trouble that Democrats are having now dealing with this? Um, well, look, I mean, you, there is there's the narrative that we all know, right? The Republicans blocked for Trump and the Democrats said that, you know, they couldn't do anything about that. Um, our reporting showed that there were various opportunities in which Democrats actually could have done more and shied away from doing more because they were afraid that there would be political pl- blowback for, from flexing the full force of their constitutional muscle. They did not chase subpoenas down in the courts. They did not go after uh, Republican witnesses. They didn't try to seek out Republican support at the outset for laying down the rules of the road for impeachment and left themselves open to all this criticism. January 6th happens. There's this galvanizing moment where everybody in Congress feels like they are similarly attacked victims, where Republicans approach Democrats saying, we can't trust Trump, we need your help, we have to work together. And there's opportunity on that very day to try to impeach the president and Democrats again, the leaders shy away from it. It ends up that we enter a situation after those two impeachments and trials where 
nothing got nothing got done. The, the impeachments failed to achieve their objective, and then you turn around, you have the January sixth committee, which has kind of kind of realized that that was a missed opportunity. They're covering a lot of the same ground as at least the second impeachment did. They are trying to flex that muscle by chasing down the subpoenas, by doing the evidence fact finding, but it's kind of a little bit too late for the public to be swept along. Yeah. And it's also too late to try to keep Trump from ever being able to run for office again the way you could have if you'd had a conviction. There's this video that came out in in the last January 6th committee hearing of what was going on behind the scenes. We have it up on the screen now at the Capitol. You can see the congressional leaders there. Rachel, you've got you've been reporting on, on what we're seeing on the screen now. You've got a lot more details about what was going on, beginning with the fact that at first Republicans and Democrats weren't even in the same room. What more? Yeah, I mean, um, there's sort of this untold story about what the Hill leaders were doing on that day. Uh, obviously, they were evacuated from the Capitol, and we found out that they played an instrumental role in saving the Capitol. Uh, they were taken to these two different rooms. We had Republicans and Democrats, and they were both getting stonewalled by the Pentagon. They were browbeating the Pentagon, trying to get answers, find out why the National Guard wasn't moving. And at one point, you know, uh, GOP leader Mitch McConnell who was frantically trying to get in, in touch with defense leaders but was being put on hold in the middle of this emergency situation. He crosses the hall and says, screw this, I've got to find I've got to find the Democrats. We have to join forces together to move something. And so together, they browbeat the Pentagon, say, why aren't you moving? And ultimately, they realize Trump is not going to do anything, right? So they have to call the vice president, Mike Pence. And it's them that gets Mike Pence to actually send this this order, clear the Capitol. And so that's sort of the origins of this and the role that they play. The interesting thing about that moment, though, is it was the only time all four leaders were united to try to bring Trump to heel and how quickly that fell apart within a few hours, right? They were so, together mm-hmm. for a moment, but yeah. not at first. I mean, yeah. the fact that they had to come together right. when it was already going on to try to fix things. And picking up on this point, as you said, Republicans at that moment were pissed, excuse me, for, for the, the harsh language, but there's no other way to put it. Lindsey Graham says, this is in your book, Graham only grew angrier upon hearing a rumor that started circulating among Trump allies in the room that the president was refusing to send in troops to help secure the Capitol. From their lockdown, he tried to call Trump to get clarity. When the president didn't answer, Graham phoned Ivanka, pressing her on whether her dad was intentionally keeping the National Guard from responding to the crisis. He could see any other reason it was taking so long for reinforcements to arrive. So Lindsey Graham was mad. Mm -hmm. A moment possibly, there were discussions, and I learned this from your book, to try to impeach Trump right then and there, but who stopped it? <laughs> the Democratic leaders. They were afraid of uh, pushing that full force. Basically, look, we, we had this moment where even the people who have shown themselves to be Trump's biggest defenders were so angry at him that they were not thinking about the politics. They were feeling the, the fear and the rage that they were feeling in that moment. That night, a group of rank-and-file Democrats in the House wrote impeachment articles, and when the the House and Senate came back to actually finish certifying the results of the Electoral College. They presented them, first going to Steny Hoyer and saying, let's do this tonight while everybody's angry, while the moment is ripe, while the iron is hot, right? Uh, and, and we're basically told, no, the leaders, Hoyer, Pelosi, discussed it, decided we're not going to do this. And it took days, days later, they were still trying to hold back the tide. And in that those days, People like Graham started to feel the pressure from Trump supporters, calling him a traitor for having made the speeches he did on the floor that night. People started to rethink their position, and you ended up with only 10 Republicans in the House being willing to actually put their you know, reputations on the line and do what they thought was right because you lost that time. Yeah, there's a real irony here because, I mean, we talk often about Republican hypocrisy, and goodness, there's tons of examples of it in our book. Um, but, you know, there was this sort of 
undercurrent with Democrats uh, after January 6th and that they didn't want to interrupt uh, the incoming president's agenda. They wanted to get moving to Joe Biden confirming his cabinet and they didn't want to take the time. And because of that, not only did they shut down impeachment on the night of January 6th, but they put pressure on people like Jamie Raskin, who were trying to convince enough Republicans to convict Trump in the Senate not to call witnesses. Um, And you have to wonder what would have happened if Raskin had the support and the means necessary to do what the January 6th committee is doing right now, which has been incredible testimony and showing that they can fight for that stuff and they can win. And yet they lost the moment when Trump was most vulnerable. And where would we be on impeachment? I mean, right now we're in this position where basically impeachment is no longer the constitutional safeguard and failsafe to hold back a despotic president or remove him, right? It's kind of a tool to express political animus. And we're heading into a season where we've got the GOP that's poised to take control in the House. And if they do, they've already said they want to impeach President Biden and members of his cabinet. They now have these recent examples to point to and say, well, why is it so bad that we're doing this? It kind of happened before. We don't have to play with nice with the Democrats or call witnesses. We can do it our way, too. And, and that's potentially a race to the bottom. Karen Demers and Rachel Bay, the book is Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's Bosch impeachments of Donald Trump. So much in here I just didn't know and so many implications for today. Congratulations to both of you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. From Russia today, a message from Brittany Griner on this, her 32nd birthday, what she's saying from prison and new information about efforts by the United States to get her free. Today is WNBA star Brittany Griner's 32nd birthday, and she is spending it in a Russian prison. A senior Biden official told CNN U.S. and Russian representatives have been in touch in the past few days. But Russia has yet to make a serious counteroffer. We've also learned that U.S. consular officials spoke by phone today with Griner and her fellow detainee, Paul Whelan. Next week, Griner will appeal her nine-year prison sentence for bringing less than a gram of cannabis oil into Russia in February. Griner's lawyers say she is, quote, very stressed about the appeal, but included a message from Griner herself saying, quote, thank you, everyone, for fighting so hard to get me home. All the support and love are definitely helping me. Turning to our health lead now, certain hair straightening products like chemical relaxers have been connected to a more than twofold increased risk of uterine cancer in new research, with black women potentially being more affected due to higher use. The study finding about 4% of women who frequently used hair straightening products developed uterine cancer by age 70, compared with just 1.6% of women who never used them. So these findings are renewing the debate over why so many minority women still feel pressured not to wear their natural hair and instead turn off into these products. I want to discuss now with Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, who's worked on issues surrounding this for many years, including co-sponsoring the Crown Act, which bans discrimination on the basis of hair. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us. What's your reaction to this finding that these products could be associated with increased cancer risk, given the pressure that black women and others feel with with you know, uh, about their hair. Listen, this, my reaction is, um, it's really, uh, I'm sad and I'm angry. And uh, I hope people understand that we have got to make sure that first of all, um, the healthcare is there for women who uh, have developed um, uterine cancer over the years. It's my understanding that 60% of the participants in the study, and I haven't read the study yet, but 60% are black women. And in fact, the pressure uh, of, you know, wearing uh, straight hair, and of course, people should be able to wear their hair however they want to wear it, not pressured to wear your hair one way or the other in order to get a job or in order to stay 
uh, young kids in school. And so what it tells me is that now uh, there, there are physical implications and uh, uterine cancer is, is a disease. It's, it's a terrible thing to have. And the mental stress and the physical stress now have to be dealt with. And we need to make sure that First of all, women uh, aren't discriminated against people. Black people, brown people aren't discriminated against. That's what the Crown Act is about because of their hair. But also make sure that uh, the health care is there and that women, that the NIH and that uh, we put forth the information in a public education campaign about the possible outcomes of uh, the straighteners and the uh, hair straightening products because they're, the chemicals or whatever the NIH determined in there must be uh, very uh, dangerous uh, to use. And I think we need to know that. And black people, brown people, people who uh, want to wear their hair in uh, different styles should be allowed to per the Crown Act and not discriminated against. And this is another wake up call about systemic racism and how it's really hurting and harming black people. So you said in the past that this issue is very personal for you because you've experienced lawmakers telling you that wearing your natural hair didn't make you look like a member of Congress? Really? I mean, how did you react to that? Well, I reacted in a very, uh, I was angry, but of course I, I have a, a personality in, in which I don't show my anger all the time, but I was very angry, so I internalized it quite a bit. And in fact, I kept wearing my hair, though, the way I wanted to wear it. And what I've learned during that process, and people still kind of wonder every now and then. Uh, and I, I said, look, we should be able to wear our hair the way we want to wear our hair. Everyone should have that right. But uh, in certain professions, uh, such as some elected officials don't believe that um, members of Congress and elected officials should not wear their hair in a natural state, that their hair should be straight. And of course, we know where that comes from. And so, yes, I've had a lot of personal experiences, as uh, many of my colleagues and many other people in in our country, especially black women who uh, have had to deal with this all of our lives. And when you look at black kids, some young black girls and boys also have been uh, expelled from school because of the way they wear their hair. It's wrong. And the mental stress and the trauma that occurs with that is outrageous and it's wrong and it's purity un-American. And so now we have the physical uh, re- uh, impacts of what uh, takes place or could take place as it relates to uterine cancer. And so we've got to get this right. And we've got to uh, make sure that the Crown Act passes, that in the Senate, and we passed it a couple of times in the House, and that black and brown people are not discriminated against, that our young people are not discriminated against, but we also have to get the medical information out and the health information out about uh, what could and could be the health impacts of this. Right. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, people should take a look at this study. We appreciate the work you've done on this issue. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Some of America's most famous waterways are drying up. The dramatic new images showing the drought's impact and emergency work underway as a result. In our Earth Matters series, pretty pictures that tell a troubling story. You're looking down at a bridge over the Platte River in Nebraska. As you can see, there's hardly any water, any at all, in that river. 98% of Nebraska is in a drought. Near the mouth of the Mississippi River, the falling level of fresh water is allowing salty seawater to push further upriver, which threatens drinking water supplies. The Army Corps of Engineers is now working on an underwater levee to try to stop that. 
So be sure to join Jake Tapper on CNN tonight. Jake is talking with Lin-Manuel Miranda on the changing political landscape when it comes to Latino candidates and voters and much more. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern time. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at John Berman. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer now in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.